From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, we've made it to another Friday here on EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan is in the house ready to go. If you'd like to speak with our very own Vice President of Theology, Give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to speak with you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good. Any uh, wild and crazy theological debates raging out there in the... Well, there probably are because, you know, you get a lot of angels dancing on the heads of pins and you have <laughs> debates about them. So, uh, no, I, uh, I I think there will be because a, a pre-synodal document was put out which pulled together all what the different dioceses had sent into Rome, the different national uh, bishops' conference and so on. Uh, and, it, and it is quite a grab bag of ideas. Uh, I think it represents, from what I've been able to read of it so far, uh, I, you know, an unfiltered view of the, of the, from the pews, as it were, which means the good and the bad, the orthodox and the not-so-orthodox. And from that point of view, I think it's probably a fairly good thermometer uh, of of the way Catholics in general think, you know, you look at the polls in the United States of belief in the Eucharist, adherence to the teaching of the Church, uh, exceptions that people have to the teachings of the Church on different issues, whether it's on the uh, on the priesthood or, or other matters. Uh, you find that Catholics are all over the pe- place, pretty much maybe emphasized by what is culturally significant at the moment. And I think this document reflects that. Uh, so uh, as I get into it and, and look at it a little bit deeper, and as our audience uh, does if they have the opportunity to do that, I think keep in mind that I would say these two points, and that is along this line that it's a thermometer of the state of the church. It therefore is also, it, it's, it's a call to those areas in the church which need healing. Now, some of that is obviously concerned with those who feel on the margins of the church. You talk about, uh, you know, the role of women in the church uh, who make up uh, probably the greatest amount of mass attendance and actual participation in the life of the church, but have no hierarchical role, uh, as they can't, doctrally cannot. 
but can play other useful roles in the church. So these kinds of questions, I think the church is continuing to grapple with. And uh, this document certainly uh, opens a lot of uh, boils, perhaps, uh, in the church. And now the, uh, the answer is going to be, what will the hierarchy do? What medicine will the hierarchy provide to within the limits of the doctrinal possibilities? And I think that'll be the question going forward, approaching the synod itself is, okay, now we know how everybody thinks, but how do we move people in the Christ-centered direction? Because obviously our Lord's life was itself totally centered on the Father. Even within the Trinity, the Father is the source and the end, the finality of the procession of the persons within the Trinity. And in his life, for Christ, in his human nature, the Father was the goal and the object of everything he did in becoming man in dying for our salvation, to bring us back to the Father. You know, so Pope Benedict always had this Christ-centered orientation uh, uh, as well, and uh, Pope Francis has also been mentioning this a lot later, lately as well. So I think, how do we reinvigorate the church, knowing what we will know coming out of this synod, so that we, the church can move forward in a very Christ-centered way, and therefore a very Father-centered way, centered way. So there are a lot of challenges I think this has brought forward and how they, the wounds will be healed, how people will uh, be brought into a more profound communion with the church and with our Lord. Uh, that will s certainly be, I think, the objective of the Synod. And it's a very tall order when you see what uh, people have expressed around the world in their various uh, Synodal processes. Yeah, many, many challenging issues facing the church around the world. Uh, many issues facing the church in the United States. Uh, a lot of them mirror what the culture is facing in the United States. And to that end, we've got a beautiful miniseries that's been running on television this year. And I want to alert you to a special uh, programming note here. Uh, but on TV this week, tonight will be the, the final installment of a five-part miniseries by Mary Hassan called the, the Transgender Movement, What Catholics Should Know. And I want to let you know that a couple weeks from now, November 7th through the 11th, right here on EWTN's Open Line, we're going to have a week-long event um, to share with you this wonderful mini-series, The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Should Know. The first half hour of Open Line that week will be the episode of that day, uh, hosted by Mary Hassan. And then the second half hour of the show will be uh, questions uh, from our open line host of the day uh, or, or commentary from that host. And then you will be allowed to call in with your questions uh, of the hosts about what you've just heard in that particular episode. And then we'll wrap everything up on Friday with a discussion of the Friday episode and kind of a, of a wrap-up of the uh, entire five-part episode. So if you're watching this, um, you can you can view it online now at EWTN.com in the on-demand section. Uh, it's free of charge uh, to witness to view this now. But if you have any questions, uh, bigger picture questions maybe of the entire series that you would like to hear Colin address, email those to us at openline at EWTN.com. 
That's openline at EWTN.com. And as we put together that final uh, installment, we will uh, incorporate some of those emails into our discussion. Um, Becca writes in, she wants to know, in his earthly lifetime, when did Jesus know that he was the Son of God? Well, from the very moment, as, as the fathers and doctors teach, and especially St. Thomas, that Christ had in his life all of the gifts which all of the saints had, and he had them uh, in a plenitude. And so we, we look at the, the, the life of the saints, and we can see all the gifts of miracles, the gifts of knowledge, and so on that they had. We have to begin by assuming that Christ also had those. More importantly, we know that he did not have, he was not a human person because our, our center, our ego, as it were, is related around the fact that we have the, our, our soul and our bodies are one substance. And our intellect and wills, of course, are part of that substance. And so we progressively gain knowledge of the world around us. Christ didn't have that deficiency. He had to gain the experiential knowledge. He grew in, in, in wisdom in that sense, as Scripture tells us. But in terms of who he was, there was only, as Fulton Sheen used to like to say, in Christ there was one who and two what's, God and man. The who was the second person of the Trinity. So the instant that the human intellect was able to form the concept of who Christ was, of who he was, we can assume that in that instant that human intellect knew precisely all that he needed to know of who he was and why he was here. Now, we can't do this in a schizophrenic kind of way, which sort of divides the personality <laughs> of Christ. But we have to realize that in his human nature, uh, he had certain, he didn't have certain capacities. And this human-centered personality and knowledge, not the person itself, but the personality that the person, ex that we individually experience about ourselves, in the instant he had that, he knew everything he needed to know about who he was and what he was to do. So we need the idea that he progressively acquired some sense of who he was in Messiahship is totally contrary to the nature of the Incarnation and the nature of who Christ was. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. EWTN's Religious Catalog is your online destination for gifts and holy reminders by Catholic Shop EWTNRC.com today and receive regular emails from EWTN's Religious Catalog. Simply visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Wide open phone lines for you on this Friday. The number is 
288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Riley writes in, If Catholics do not believe in Sola Scriptura, then how do they avoid the conclusion that the Church is self-authenticating? Well, the church isn't self-authenticating. It's authenticated by Christ because he clearly gives the outlines of the, of, the, uh, of the church in the sacred scripture itself. So it's not that the sacred scripture is not taken as a revealed word of God, but that the revealed word of God itself necessitates the existence of the church for all of Christ's promises to be satisfied in the world. And he makes those claims himself. So the scripture, as it was, uh, both uh, affirms the church, and the church is the pillar of truth, affirms the scripture. And in fact, the, without the Catholic Church, there would be no scripture, because it was the church that preserved it, assembled it, identified the canon of it, and for a thousand years uh, uh, existed just fine and dandy, uh, living that scriptural faith, that ecclesial faith, uh, until others d- began to dispute it. So we have this interrelationship of the of the church and its authority as expressed in the magisterium with the with the two uh, uh, with the two testaments of sacred scripture, and we have it also with the teaching of the apostles, who are the direct uh, heirs, as it w- were, of the apostolic teaching or the apostles, then on to the further generations. So. Um, there, there is this symphony, if you will, almost a Trinitarian characteristic uh, to it, in which the magisterium, the scriptures, the, uh, the apostolic tradition has passed down from the apostles through the, through the fathers of the church and, and in the church, that these things all, things all together are an authentication of the, of the gospel. Because we know historically there is very, very little mention of the life of Christ, so that even Christ exists, although there are hints of it in different writings, and certainly the persecution of the church evidences the fact that Christ existed. Um, nonetheless, the church is the primary witness of Christ. Uh, scripture doesn't, doesn't authenticate the existence of Christ. It's the living individuals, the apostles, who witness to the resurrection. It's their descendants, the bishops, who witness to the truth of the apostolic teaching and of the Gospels themselves. And so th- they're absolutely necessary for each other. And in the wisdom of God, they're provided exactly what we needed to do this. And when you pull one of those out, the authority of the magisterium, or you pull out the sacred scripture and make each individual an interpreter of the sacred scripture, or you pull out the sacred tradition, then what you end up is you end up hobbling along trying to make it up as you go along. So the church has all of the elements that are provided in the sacred scripture itself to carry on the mission of Christ with authority, the sacraments, in the teaching, uh, and, and so on. And without without all of those elements, you end up with some version of, some limited version, what the church herself has referred to as ecclesial communities. In other words, they're church-like communities, but they aren't the church Christ founded. Uh, first up today on the phones is Martin. He's a first-time caller in Albany, New York, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Martin, you are on with Colin Donovan. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, 
my question was that based on kind of being uncomfortable and bothered when people complain that women can't be ordained priests in the church, that if you take a global view of hierarchy, because women can become saints and and have become doctors of the church, I, I just find that argument difficult, especially when we also know that without women in the church, there is no church. It can't just be men. And I was just wondering what your mm-hmm. thoughts are yeah. on that. Well, there are two different realities there. The ministry of the church is the those individuals, or the hierarchy of the church, are those individuals who carry on Christ's ministry, his own ministry, most directly. And as uh, the church's only real claim on this is the one which Paul VI, John Paul II, and, and the popes since this has been what was not an issue in the church until the 60s, really, I don't think, maybe in, in some quarters. Uh, the Protestant churches obviously devolved ministry into a lay apostolate, and women, women take those in most cases. And so in the Catholic Church, it didn't really come along in any great force until women's liberation, I would think. And so Paul VI dealt with that, reaffirmed by all the popes since then, including uh, uh, Pope Francis. The principal argument is that, I just mentioned the three elements of this, the scripture, the tradition, and the magisterium. There has never been any evidence that women were called to the, this ministry, either by Christ himself or at any stage of the church. And you can make up any—you can also make up social arguments against this, uh, this point of view. There's no question about that. But the church's main claim is that this is the received tradition of the church, and the church herself has no authority to change that. In other words, if you say the Ten Commandments are the received moral tradition of the Church, the Church can't suddenly decide, let's scratch out commandment number six, because it's not very popular today, which is certainly the case. Throw nine while you're at it, since it's a close adjunct to six. So the Church doesn't see it as, as, as having the authority to do that. That's the principal point. Now, you can come up with theological arguments for this, and that is that Going back even to the question of God and uh, as to whether, you know, we can talk about God or goddesses or father and mother God, as, as some have done, despite the fact the Church telling them they shouldn't. The argument is, again, that in Revelation we receive a, a particular view of God. Now, we might think, well, maybe God should have thought that up a little bit better and done it differently, but he didn't, and of course— he, could, he knows everything, so what he gave us is what he wanted us to have, and we protect that. And so, principally, through Christ, speaking of himself as, you know, when you see me, you see the Father, there is something about masculinity, of course, which must be in some way a better analogy of the nature of God, at least with respect to us, his creatures, than, say, femininity. And so the general theological argument goes along the line of that in the, the world of, 
uh, pantheism, for example, or where you have pantheons of gods, you have male and female gods, they're usually reflections of human nature in some way. You've got the god, the, the god of war, the god of love, the god of fertility, the god of the, the harvest, the god of this, that, and the other thing. So th- this is a anthropomorphic projections onto God, mankind always having a sense that there's something greater than himself. He has to sort of create these projections, and he has. In the case of Judaism and Christianity, we have God himself revealing who he is. So the theological explanation, which is a separate matter from the faith of the church, the faith of the church is only men can be priests. Theology does not determine faith. Faith determines theology. And so the reflection on that truth is that in pantheism, for example, God is, could be, you know, we're part of God. There are some religions that, you know, equate all of nature with God. Uh, and so you could look at it that way, sort of the Gaia idea. Or you say, well, father and mother are just as good. Well, what's, what's the, what's, what does father and mother represent? What does masculinity and femininity represent? And the fact that our culture covers and clouds this issue today is irrelevant to this question because we can clearly say that the purpose of the male-female distinction is for procreation. In procreation, the man gives outside of himself. The woman receives and nurtures it. So if God, in trying to show to us what he is like, he is the God that is not part of creation. He is the God who doesn't come out of the creation. He is the God who stands transcendent of, from the creation. And so the creation is outside of him. This is quite different from religions that have a goddess that has this idea of the maternal and nurturing. Now, those principles and those, those ideas, you could say those human dimensions, are in God himself. But in defining who he is and giving us what is the nature of God, it's God who, who creates outside of himself. That's the theological explanation, which, as I said, is different, is distinct from what the faith teaches us. We're obliged to the faith. We're not obliged necessarily to accept some particular theological explanation or analogy, because all theology is basically analogy to what God is or what church, sacraments, and so on is, as as St. Thomas points out. We're obliged to accept the faith, and people will have different arguments about the explanation of why that is. But that that it is, is what the church believes, and I think that, you know, in a world whose history down through time shows the manifest ways in, the multiple ways in which God can be shown or or spoken of, uh, that the God of the Jews and Christians uh, and Muslims, I would say, also as well, in terms of a supreme transcendent being, uh, masculinity is the best representative of that. And in the particular case of the, of the hierarchical priesthood, it's representing Christ. You could say it's representing the apostles who, who Christ sent out. And so that's the sign there. Now, it's quite understandable that in a culture confused about masculine and feminine, male and female, there would be confusion about why only men can be priests. That doesn't mean that women can be priests. It just means people are confused about why they ought to believe 
and why that belief is reasonable that only men can be priests. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 271-2985. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We've got some of our great radio partners that need your help next week. Um, if you're in the Raleigh-Durham area, Divine Mercy Radio is airing their pledge drive next Wednesday through Friday. Uh, if you live in South Carolina, our good friends at South uh, Catholic Radio in South Carolina will be airing their pledge drive next Thursday and Friday. And a very neat event coming up this weekend. Uh, those of you listening in Marshalltown, Iowa, in the central Iowa area, um, they'll be having a Catholic Radio weekend this upcoming weekend, tomorrow and Sunday. So those of you in uh, Raleigh-Durham, in uh, South Carolina, in Marshalltown, Iowa, and anywhere you have a wonderful EWTN affiliate, uh, be sure to take care of those good for- folks and please support your local Catholic Radio station. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Open lines available for you at 833-288-3986. Landon wants to know if the Israelites really crossed the Red Sea. Uh, well, <laughs> not in the way that Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, certainly. There is historical truth in that statement. And I have heard that some explanations even of theologians is that, well, you know, there was an earthquake in the Mediterranean somewhere and all this water washed up and it was really the Reed Sea and it was down by the Mediterranean and they washed over the... I have trouble reconciling that with the text that there was a wall of water to the right and a wall of water to the left. So I'm going to stick with the text that were given, even if I don't quite understand the historical context of how that came about. We are given an explanation in the scriptures that Moses brought this about through an exercise of his prayer, if you will, or the authority God gave him. And I think in the absence of anything to the contrary, that is what we generally should believe. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't providential miracles as well as miracles in the strict sense. So I don't think the church mandates one particular view on, the, on this or the other. I, I tend to think, though, that the text says something specific, and that has to be the starting point. Otherwise, we're just making up our interpretations of Scripture. So we start with that, uh, and uh, maybe someday they will... I know they look for the for the chariots at the bottom of the Red Sea, and they haven't found it, but that was 3,300 years ago or something like that, so uh, maybe they won't. Horse and rider thrown into the sea. Uh, Next up is Ernest in the great state of Louisiana, listening on Catholic Community Radio. Ernest, you're on with Colin Donovan. 
Good evening, uh, uh, afternoon, sir. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Can you turn your radio down, Ernest? I turned it off, so. Okay, go ahead. What's your question? This is my question. I was reading about Jesus sending out the 72. Take no bag, take, you know, take no money, take no sandals. And uh, I was wondering if those 72 were sent out before the apostles was chosen or after, and who were they? Yeah, yeah. Um... Certainly, we're given accounts of after the baptism of Jesus, we basically see within a fairly, we don't know the exact chronology, but we say in terms of the length of Jesus' ministry, within a fairly short time, the scriptures show or the Gospels give the accounts of the choosing of the different apostles. It's quite clear that our Lord had other followers who followed him, both male and female, because we hear about the women who followed him. We hear about the the 72 disciples. So I, I think you're talking about two different groups. Now, it's quite possible, and I don't, again, the information I don't think is given clearly in Scripture. We know Jesus singled individuals out to be apostles, um, there's no indication that they were previously among the 72, but I suppose that's not far-fetched, or among the general followers of Christ. But besides those who are the, the apostles, and here the general meaning which the Church takes that to be is these are the official witnesses, as it were, of the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, the central thing which defines the Christian. Is this religion? relationship that we have to Christ the Redeemer. And so that that's the reason they were selected and to give, be given the authority necessary to continue that ministry down through the centuries, as they did by selecting the bishops. Now, whether the said there's probably some overlap among the 72 of those who were chosen for, for other roles, uh, were this the, the deacons that we hear about chosen from among that group? We, we don't know. We can assume that there were uh, certainly um, at the time of Pentecost, there was, you know, was suddenly now a need for helpers of the apostles. Uh, but exactly the, the purpose of Scripture is not to give us sort of an organizational record of how the church settled all of these problems. We see it in the major areas. We see it in the choosing of the apostles. We see it in the choosing of Matthias as a replacement for Judas. We see it in the establishment of the sacraments. We see it in the general role and the office of what the apostles do. Uh, but other than that, we know that there were the 72, and there were probably many more beside. Uh, and whether those 72, many of them became priests, I don't know if his, church historians have, have settled that that question or not. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, a rare opportunity on a Friday. Open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out Vatican Insider with our good friend Joan Lewis. It airs Saturdays at 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time and Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio, direct from the Eternal City. EWTN's Joan Lewis speaks with Vatican officials and visitors about events affecting the church and the world 
Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis, Saturday, 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m., and Sunday morning, 6 a.m., all Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. I love the way this next question is worded. Donald says, I am a Protestant. What is the difference between Catholics and Christians? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I guess you could say that the Catholics are, in one sense, a subset of Christians, although the Church is that body of Christians to whom Christ wills that all men be associated with because the church represents he himself. And so, in a way, uh, as uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger wrote in a document called Dominus Jesu that was published in the year 2000, uh, the Lord Jesus, there, there is a unicity between Christ and the church. You can think of it as Christ historically, that's Jesus who was incarnate, who lived and died, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. And then you have the mystical Jesus, the church, that goes on and perpetuates his work down until he, he himself returns to gather all of his, uh, all of his disciples uh, with him into, uh, into eternity. So that's what the role of the church is. Now, the church recognizes that all of those outside the church who are validly baptized you know, have this relationship with Christ. They are Christians. Um, and in some sense, more and more, I think certainly in the, in the Second Vatican Council, there's the acknowledgement that there is an imperfect communion of the non-Catholic Christian with the, with the Catholic Church, because you can't say that somebody who is in Christ is not in some sense also uh, in the mystical Christ, even though they don't recognize that formal need, and they don't formal, and the Church doesn't formalize that particular relationship, to, except to say there's a, an imperfect communion. And so, when people come into the Church today, we talk about their reception into the Church or coming into full communion with the Church. This is an acknowledge that in some way every believer in Jesus Christ whose belief have gone to the point where they have been baptized into his passion, death, and resurrection, is in relationship with the Catholic Church and is in communion with the Catholic Church, even if they would vehemently deny it. In their love of Jesus, they think, well, the Church is a usurper, and they vehemently deny it, but they do it in ignorance. There is nonetheless some communion with such an individual. And so it's for God and his grace to lead others to recognize uh, the necessity of the church, the necessity of the sacraments. Uh, obviously, in the church saying that it's baptism, that you go into that relationship with Christ, he's talking about initially the absolute necessity of baptism for being a Christian. And the church has formally defined that in terms of groups which do not have uh, Christian baptism understood as baptism uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, such as the Jehovah Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, the, ba the Mormons, and others uh, who don't, but does recognize it with respect to all the other Christian groups that have uh, used water and the Trinitarian formula to baptize with the intention of baptizing the individual into the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They are our brothers in the church, in a sense, in this imperfect communion, 
even though they would deny it and even though they don't recognize it. Still have a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next, we head to Indiana. Christina is a first-time caller listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Christina, you're on with Colin Donovan. Go right ahead, Christina. What you do for us. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Go right ahead. Okay. Um, I had a question about when... Uh, like, what year was the Bible formed or put together? I didn't know if there was, like, a council that put it together, mm-hmm. or if it took several years. I didn't know what—how did the—when and how was the Bible formed? Sure. Uh, well, it took more than several years before there was a formed canon, a canon simply meaning the order of the, uh, you know, the authentic books, that which the Church herself recognized. And we have to remember, in the first century, Judaism did not have a canon. In fact, it technically doesn't have uh, a canon today, although uh, there is a general recognition among all of the, the different uh, uh, groups of, uh, of Judaism that you have, you, know, the, you have the Torah, you have the histories, you have the, uh, the prophets. And so there, there is that generally. That did not exist in the first century until very late in the first century in Palestine when there was a canon. So the church came into existence without even a formal Old Testament, although certainly every Jew would acknowledge the Torah, for example, the five books attributed to Moses, uh, would have recognized the prophets, uh, would have recognized the historical books that were in general use, uh, but there were other books uh, that were claimed. The, 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 the rabbis in Alexandria and Egypt, uh, they had books that were written, the, the wisdom literature, for example, uh, written, written in Greek, uh, that aren't necessarily in the Jewish canon, but were in the practice of the Jews of Alexandria in Egypt. So it was a very fluid situation. This is where how what the church was born into. So we know that Apostles wrote letters. We know that Gospels were written. And already by the middle of the second century, we find one of the early fathers of the church, um, one who in fact was uh, uh, put to death, uh, writing in, in, uh, to, to the emperor describing the nature of the liturgy. And in that, he so that they read the memoirs of the apostles. They didn't have the the, the word gospel. So there were different books uh, being about. Remember how they had to be communicated, uh, that even if you had the scroll, or because they didn't have books per se, even if you had the scroll of Old Testament books, for example, as they did in the synagogue, as they did in the temple, then those things had to be replicated for others to be able to do the same thing you do in this synagogue or in this temple. Well, this church had the same problem. So these things got passed around, you know, and you can just picture that, you know, a Corinthian going to, oh, have you read the late letter of St. Paul to us? No, no, I haven't read that. Oh, we'll, we'll get you a copy. So they start reading th- these books, and they're, un- they're read around the Mediterranean and the developing of a corpus, uh, a canon, as it will, by the liturgical practice primarily. But what happens then in the, in the latter part of the second century, in the beginning, and certainly well into the third century, the three, 200s, 
is you get the different bishops commenting on books which there was no clear canonicity. Well, what about Hebrews or what about the book of Revelations, the, uh, the uh, Apocalypse? And so these debates took place among the, uh, the bishops of the church. And so there were different practices even then. There was no canon that every, every diocese uh, would have the same, necessarily the same books. And then into the third, fourth century in the 300s, we have perhaps, there was already a general agreement, and different authors writing in those days have pretty much the same books from the late, late 200s into the 300s. And the first official statement is a letter which the Bishop of Rome wrote. Uh, he had just held a, a synod in Rome in 380, and a bishop in France wrote him and asked him what books are held at Rome to be inspired. And he sent back the list, which is in the Catholic Bible today. And in North Africa, a, few, a decade or two later, in the, in the 390s, Augustine, dealing with uh, a group of, of, uh, of heretics, they rejected the Old Testament altogether. I mean, all those old—what do we need those Jewish books for? They threw one to throw that out. He provided in the councils in Carthage, two of them, a, can, two, a canon, and it was the same canon being used at Rome. Meanwhile, off in the Holy Land, uh, St. Jerome had gone there. He was a priest of Rome. He went to the Holy Land, and he, he was very educated in, in Latin, obviously, uh, and in Greek and Hebrew. And he started translating it all into Latin because that was the, the vulgar language, the vernacular, if you will, of, the, uh, of that period so that he produced the Latin Vulgate, and that is what was used throughout the Middle Ages in Europe uh, as the Bible of the Catholic Church in Europe and North Africa until the Muslims basically destroyed the Christian Church in North Africa. So it developed rather organically, and the only thing that is continuous through all of that is the authority of the Church, whether deciding regionally what books to use or whether deciding in the, in the person of the Bishop of Rome or deciding in councils what books to accept. The only continuous thing from that period, of, from the first century, when there was no canon, Jewish or otherwise, to the fourth century, is the authority of the Catholic Church. And that, that perdured for another thousand years until along comes the Reformers, you know, who they don't like Hebrew. Well, actually, I think they liked Hebrews. James. They don't like James, uh, you know. I think Luther was actually deferred from getting rid of one, some of the books. I think Hebrews was actually one of them. Yeah. So, you know, again, the only continuity in Christian world is that continuity of that canon that goes back through Pope Sylvester to this uh, 390, 380, into this period of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century when there were the debates about, you know, what was truly apostolic and therefore authoritative and what wasn't. Uh, so that's the way, that's the context in which it developed. Now, the, the Jews themselves developed a canon at Jamnia in... Uh, uh, in Galilee in the late first century. 
Uh, and that's pretty much held together through the Masoretes, who were rabbis in the eight nine hundreds that produced the what is considered the you know sort of the the basic uh, Hebrew reference Bible, if you will, uh, used to do translations. Used by Christians as well when you're looking for a you know a, a solid Hebrew text that has some historical value to it, and you want to do original translation. Um, and then, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls came along, and that threw the, everybody back to the f- pre-Christian in the first century era, where now they actually have old, old text. And the one constant through that whole period of a thousand years, from the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Masoretes to the Bibles of our day, is the, uh, the high degree of faithfulness of earlier t- later texts with earlier texts that the Bible has been generally faithfully transcribed down through the millennia. And it's really amazing. Obviously, there are differences over texts come up and they make decisions that may or may not be right. But in general, there has been nothing really effectively to destroy these, the implications of the Word of God in any of those findings over the course of the development of the Bible uh, or over the course of the discovery of the ancient texts that certify more or less the the texts that we're using today for our vernacular translations in Spanish and English and so on. Next up is Dominic in Des Moines, Iowa, listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Dominic, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. Just a quick question. Thanks for your postulate. Um, what's the difference between a, an apostle and a disciple? I've always... Well, the technical distance, dif- difference would be, I guess, the the usage of the, of the scripture between the apostles, uh, who Christ put in charge of the of his church, of his ecclesia, ecclesia, and uh, simply his followers. So, I guess you could say, if you're looking for the generic meaning of it, all all dis- all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. And we use that in the generic sense today. We talk about apostolates. Lay people can have apostolates. We're not saying they're apostles in the formal sense that the church understands it, but it's a word that means those who spread the gospel. Uh, evangelists would be the more strictly uh, literal way of saying that. They're an evangelist. We're not claiming that they wrote one of the four books of the, of the Bible, of the Gospels, of the New Testament. So these, use, these terms are used in a very generic sense, as well as in the technical sense of the apostles chosen by Christ for that formal role versus all of his followers uh, in general. And so today, all, all Christian believers are disciples of Christ uh, in that gen- generic sense. And all of those who work in uh, spreading the gospel, as Jack and I here do, and those at EWTN and other ministries do, are in that sense evangelists and apostles, but not in the formal sense in which the church narrows it down when you're talking about uh, the, the, the Twelve and their successors. Uh, Alan writes in, why, <laughs> why do Catholics believe that baptism and faith are both important for salvation? Jesus clearly said salvation only required belief, not baptism. I'm not sure where Jesus clearly said that. Uh, in I fact, I can't tell you where he clearly said the opposite. <laughs> that's that. That's that's certainly true. Well, who would be baptized if they didn't have faith? Even though we understand it there in a very precise way, is they've come to believe the witness of Christ is credible. 
and they accept baptism as the people on Pentecost Sunday did when Peter put to them, you know, unless you repent and believe and are baptized, you shall not inherit eternal life. So repentance and sufficient natural faith is required to seek baptism, which gives them supernatural faith and which is the door to eternal life. Uh, so faith precedes baptism as a natural reality. It's received with baptism as a gift of God. Otherwise, we'd be attributing to ourselves the power of giving us ourselves faith. But no, we attribute it to the act of the mystical Christ, the church, receiving the person into the communion of the church through baptism and therefore by also the communion of Christ. And finally, Sam says, is there a point where we are beyond forgiveness and can't utilize confession anymore? I find myself despairing sometimes even after confession. Well, um, that's something you certainly don't want to, to do because, you know, faith not just the door to, to, to the sacrament of baptism. You need to have faith also in the fact that Christ gave the apostles the power to absolve. So you're not trusting yourself. If you trust yourself, you're going to end, you know, despair or presumption. Presuming on God by doing, oh, I can do this and God loved me so much he's never going to chastise me, much less send me to hell. Despair, my sins are so terrible, terrible that even the blood of Christ can't take them away in the sacrament of penance. You want to avoid that, but you want to have faith those two extremes. You want to have faith in the in the power which Christ gave the church to absolve from sins and to take that to the bank when the priest said, I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Believe that, believe that by the power of divine faith and trust it. Then go forward and you'll be the human being we all are and we're going to mess up again and we're going to be back in the box, but we're going to try and that's the main thing God looked for us. Are we constantly returning subject humbly to him and to the ministry of the church. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until then, have a great weekend, and God bless. <laughs>